Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Make It Kind. Ladies and gentlemen, we're joined today by a very distinguished guest. She is the Canada Research Chair and professor of gender and Islamic studies at the University of British Columbia. In 2018, she was named uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau Fellow and is a member of the Royal Society of Canada. She's the author of Domestic Violence and the Islamic Tradition. Her research focuses on religion, law, and social justice. So today we're going to talk to her about her latest book. It's her memoir, and it's about how blending our various identities can help us find our true self. That new book is entitled The Color of God, and we're happy to have with us on Make It Plain today, Aisha Chowdhury. Aisha, welcome to Make It Plain. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm really honored to be here. It, it's an honor to have you. And by the way, folks, she is in Canada uh, right now. So this is your this is your memoir, correct? Um, it's it's that's such a funny title for the book. Uh, it's like I think when I went to when we got when I got into the publication process, they asked me what the book was, and I said it was a book of embodied theory, which is how I was thinking about it when I was writing it. Um, but there's no section in the bookstore, I think for embodied theory. So they were like, well, it's personal essays, it's, it's memoir. And so that's what it's filed under, under memoir. Okay. But I didn't really write it to tell the story of my life. I tell the stories to make arguments. I see, I see. Yeah. So you, you, you were raised a, a Muslim, is that correct? That's right, I was born in Toronto, raised by Muslim parents. Uh-huh. And so the, the timing is interesting because we're in the season of, of Ramadan, are we not? We are. 
we are. <laughs> yeah. But um, uh, if I understand correctly, your upbringing in Islam um, was also related to something else going on simultaneously. You and your family were dealing with racism. Right. So my parents migrated to Canada in the late 60s, early 70s, and they were um, from, from, from Pakistan. That's what I thought. Okay, right. From Pakistan, right. Um, and, you know, from Pakistan. So like po Pakistan was formed in 1947. So partition mm -hmm. plays a, like a very important role in the story of my family and in my self-understanding. So my father's family, my father himself actually migrated from India to Pakistan with partition. And then my mother was born in Pakistan. Um, but they were only in Pakistan for a few years, maybe less than 20 years before they moved to Canada. And when they came to Canada, they took a very assimilationist approach to being in Canada. So my father was a welder, a blue collar worker. He was a welder and a pipe fitter. And my mother was, you know, a stay at home mom, take, raise, having the children and raising them. And they really tried for the first decade or so that they were in Canada to assimilate to a, you know, to, be, to become Canadian. And they had this experience in Canada that I think a lot of people of color do when they come to a country that practices white supremacy, which is that they discover that they are not white. And so that's a really shocking, um, it's a shocking experience, I think, for a lot of people. And we don't talk about it as much about the kind of repercussions that that has in their lives. So my parents, you know, after trying to assimilate and understanding slowly over the years that they would never be white. And so they never would never fit a particular image of a Canadian, we're sort of negotiating this like very complicated train from a low class on the social hierarchy. And um, my father at one point happened to go to a Friday prayer. He was not a very religious man. And he went to a mosque that used to be a church that was converted into a mosque, which I think the architectural symbolism of that is really important as well. And there was a preacher there who was preaching uh, that Friday. He, he had come from Pakistan. And he was preaching, um, you know, a post-partition nationalist version of Islam that was influenced by Saudi Wahhabi ideas of Puritanism. And basically in his sermon, he preached a form of Islam that made my father feel like he could be something else. He could be someone else, that he could find meaning in a grander historical cosmological narrative where he could be important and valued. And so the form of Islam he was preaching was very compelling for him and then later very compelling for my mother as well. So they both joined this preacher's, what I call as a religious studies scholar, a cult. It was a small form of Islam, like a small like sect of Islam. A cult is like a better word for it. That's a word I use. You took an oath of allegiance on the hand of this man. You tied wealth to him and you joined a, a chapter, which was called an usra, which is a family. So it was a very puritanical version of Islam that my parents joined. And they joined the year I was born. So I was almost, and they, so they encountered this form of Islam in Canada, not in Pakistan. Um, and they found it compelling in Canada and not in mm. Pakistan. And so I came to be raised in a family, in a household that had this, you know, with the, like, with the zealousness of a newly converted household, even though mm. they were basically converting from one form of Islam to another form of Islam. Mm, mm. And so, I mean, obviously, what, what should I, I, I mean, I think I, many of us take cult, their terminology to be pejorative. Right. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, well, that's a good well, talk to us about that and, and your family's experience with that. Was, right. was this a was this a was this a, a more positive or a more negative mm -hmm. experience? Well, 
Well, I think that when I say cult, I mean to say that it's not mainstream Islam. So it's not like uh, it's not representative of like how Muslim, how a lot of most Muslims are raised. It's a very small group. It had a very particular vision for what a good Muslim looked like, what the purpose of Muslims on earth was. It had a whole philosophy behind it that was based on this cult leader's ideas. So I think of cult in that way. I'm not thinking of it necessarily pejoratively, but it's, it's a very like particular narrow understanding of Islam that is very puritanical in which you know, you're like the people that are in it are saved and are on the right path and everyone else is not following the right path. They're misguided in one way or another. So I was raised in this organization, basically, that was, I think from the outside, many people would find really, you know, in this political climate would find like maybe, I don't know, I think the word that I think that people would find that I don't even want to say is scary. But, you know, and it was in the time where, you know, during my lifetime where there was the Iraq war and then the Afghan war and demonizing Muslims is part of the political rhetoric of the countries that we were living in. But I was being raised by these people who were fundamentalist Muslims and they were proud to use that term fundamentalism to describe themselves. The cult leader very much you know, espoused that term proudly because he said that we were returning to the fundamentals of Islam and what was wrong with that. And I was raised by, this, so by these people that I loved and I, by whom I was loved. And so it was, not, it was not a terrifying place for me to be at all. And so that's why I think it's a unique way, a unique entry into the conversation about identity and Islamophobia and race in when we think about citizenship. Well, it would, let's get into that then. So, mm-hmm. so how did that help you and your family cope with Islamophobia and racism? Was being a part of this sect helpful in that regard? Well, great question. So my parents, when they, you know, they were sort of encountering racism and they were really upset about it and it was traumatic for them. And they were also understanding that they could not control that because you can't change the color of your skin. So they, I think in, in the reason this vision of Islam was compelling for them was that it basically allowed them to gain control over the experience that they were having. So when, if they were, if they joined this organization and they dressed a certain way, my father grew out his beard to like the length of a fist. My mother started wearing hijab. If they did all of this stuff, then when people saw them, they would maybe mock them or deride them for the way they looked, the way they were dressed. So for their religious beliefs, instead of their racial, instead of the color of their skin. And I think that that gave my parents a sense of control over their persecution. They felt like um, every time they were, you know, they faced tra- a traumatic incident around being othered. They felt like it was basically they were getting martyr points. They were getting virtue points that were being deposited in their bank account. This was noble. Their struggle, their struggle and their suffering was noble instead of just really inequitable and sad. So it gave them a sense, I think, a meaning, a purpose in their persecution. And that's why I think it was very compelling for them. Yeah. More MIP after this message. So they they found sort of a way as those of us in historically oppressed always do to maybe even either compartmentalize or choose right what what box of phobia they're going to check yes against <laughs> be it religion or the color of our skin or nationality right I mean, think about it so we're talking about your parents mm-hmm. we're, we're we're looking at what two or three boxes checking you got checked you got religion. Right. You've got uh, skin color. You've got race. You've got nationality. Yeah. So, I mean, it was. And class. Oh, yeah, class too. So right. anybody in Canada could just any mo check any box. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. But but you're saying so what this what the religion allowed them to do 
it gave them, if I understand you correctly, it gave them room to feel noble mm-hmm. or, or, or worthwhile in the persecution. It was, it was, it was persecution for a worthy cause and for their faith, correct? Right, yeah, and I, and I see it almost like a shield from racism. The hyper-performing the Islamic identity became a kind of shield for, for, from racism. And I think that in the lives of, in my life anyways, because I also hyper-performed my religious identity for most of my life being raised in that house, so I wore hijab since I was five, and I wore a niqab, a face veil, for 10 years, from grade 10 to the end of my master's. So being, and being like living in Canada, going to public school, going to public university in that, in, in those, like wearing hijab and niqab, I think that what they meant to do like worked because I actually didn't fully become aware of my religious, of my racial identity until I stopped wearing hijab. And I was like, oh, I, 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 at some place in my brain, I just always thought, like the problem, people hated Islam. And mm-hmm. then when I stopped wearing hijab, I was like, oh, I'm brown. <laughs> so I think in a way it came full circle. Like I think with the strategy that they adopted actually did shield us at growing up as uh, like the children from, even though now I understand that Islamophobia is racialized and the racial, ele- like the racial element of that was always present. I mean, I think I, when I was, when I encountered, um, you know, othering, I definitely felt it was because of religion and not because yeah. of my race. And I felt, you know, empowered in that way because I was choosing to dress this way and I could choose not to. Mm-hmm. You know? so w- would you say that that is somewhat commonplace, that, that, that many will think that whatever discrimination that they're feeling is because of their faith or right. being Muslim and that 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 many others use that as a shield and maybe don't acknowledge the racial or the skin color implication. I mean, I wonder, I wonder if that's true for other people. I think what's interesting, I think I'm sure it's true in the case of some people, but I feel like what's interesting about discrimination and trauma that's associated with that is that humans are so complicated and we are, you know, we're not, we don't do things in a straightforward way. And I have this line in the book where I talk about humans being leaky, like we don't fit into a box. So we don't experience trauma or discrimination associated, like the trauma associated with discrimination in a straightforward or linear way. So you actually never know how someone's going to respond to discrimination. Some people will, you know, maybe it'll, they'll find a way to assert control, control through like an eating disorder. Some people might find a way to do that by hyperperforming their religious identity. Some people might do that you know, respond by becoming more radicalized. Um, there's so many different ways that people respond to discrimination. And I think that's a question I really wanted to raise in the book for my readers to think about what are the ways in which if they are experiencing discrimination, what are the ways that they're trying to fight control over that in their life? And how is that being expressed in maybe unintentional ways? Would you say it's, it's healthy or unhealthy either way? <laughs> well, I think it's a toxic situation, right? Like discrimination is so horrible. It basically makes you feel like you're not worthy as a human being, that you have less worth, that you're inherently problematic. So I think because it comes from a toxic place, I don't think, um, I don't know what, what, a, what a healthy response to that would look like. I think it's important to ask the question, but not, I don't know the answer to, to that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's kind of like um, trying to come up with every different way you can think of not to get burned by the flame. The flame is still coming. Right. So, right. I mean, maybe they're 
10 different ways to shield yourself, but you're mm-hmm. right. You're still, you're still having to react to the toxic right. situation. Whatever. Right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. The situation is fundamentally unhealthy that you're yeah. already in. Oh, and in this book, I, I think I sort of trace the ways in which my parents, like, you know, they take this identity and then I just really trace the ways that that moves through my life and how it affects major moments in my life. And what are the impacts that it has? And I try to do it in a way that really tries to hold the fullness of the humanity of all of the characters involved, but at the same time, you know, looks critically at the consequences of, of that. In a, in, so the, hence my argument about it being an embodied, a book of embodied theory, where I'm thinking about these issues of like citizenship and belong, the ways that we have of belonging, of shaping the world that shapes us, but we're doing that, you know, we're thinking about citizenship and we try to be citizens of a nation state. We try to belong to our families. We try to belong to our religions. We try to create a sense of we that is always changing. But I'm curious about what are the violences that we do as we try to belong to mm. these different things mm. that we are always making up and that are always fluctuating as we move through the world. So you clearly are not wearing hijab nor a veil currently. Talk right. to us about that. So, so where are you with that? sect or that cult of Islam your parents and, and were involved in, you were raised in. Where are you with that now? Well, I'm not in it anymore. I'm, I'm Muslim, but I'm not part of that particular organization and nor are my parents actually. They sort of like over the years softened their stances as I think age does that to people. It softens them sometimes, not all the time. So I'm not in it anymore. And I don't wear, I don't feel like wearing hijab or niqab is an essential part of what it means to be a Muslim, or it's not the kind of ideal femininity that I necessarily espouse. But I very much feel strongly that, you know, the state and really no one should intervene in women's choices, sartorial choices about what they, how they express their, how, whatever it is that they wear, for whatever reason it is that they wear what they wear. So I support women's choice to do, to wear what they want to. But that's what, that was one of the interesting things in the book, actually, is that I, Noticed only after I had written the book and it was in print that I actually didn't, I didn't have like an unveiling story. And I'm really glad I didn't, but Mm. I also almost didn't, I think I was, because I was trying to write the story, I was thinking about a Muslim audience. I was thinking about young Muslim women. I was thinking about people in diaspora. I was thinking of people who are minorities in white supremacist nation states. Mm -hmm. Um, That story didn't feel like an important story and it just never came up. And I, I really love that now in retrospect, even though I don't think I intended to do that. So you you love it now. Help me understand why. Why do you love it now that you didn't include that or you didn't have an unveiling story? Because I think that's, you know, one of the things that I'm really curious about are what are the questions that we have about ourselves that are formed, that are actually our own questions and come from within us? And what are the questions that we are often find ourselves engaging in? that are questions that are imposed on us from outside, from an external white gaze. And it feels to me like that's more a question that is interesting to a white gaze that was not actually interesting to me at all. And I know that because even without meaning to, I never ended up having that story in, I just didn't end up having that story in the book. It wasn't like the biggest moment, most important, you know, moment for me to explore. And so... That's why I'm sort of excited. Yeah. That's why it pleases me. <laughs> yeah, I got you. But but I do have to ask, though, in in the experience you and your family had, and it doesn't have to be, I'm just asking, mm-hmm. Were, mm-hmm. were you also in that branch of Islam dealing with issues of of sexism at all? Yes. And I talk about that in the book, actually. I talk about patriarchy is pervasive and it's all over the world and nobody has a special claim to it that it's, you know, it's very complex. It's 
sophisticated, it changes form. Um, and it's not about, it's about a difference of degree, not of like it's existing or not. So I do very much in the book talk about the kind of patriarchal structures that I encounter like in a secular nation state, but I also talk about the kinds of patriarchal structures and teachings that I face within the Islamic tradition, whether I'm thinking about like the particular cult that I'm raised in and the kinds of ideas of like ideal femininity that are promulgated, but also in sort of like more mainstream conversation. So when I was thinking, you know, the first book that I wrote is called Domestic Violence in the Islamic Tradition. It's basically an intellectual history of a particular verse in the Quran, chapter four, verse 34, that has been interpreted and car carries on being interpreted in some in the laws of some nation states to permit husbands to hit their wives. That's like very much an interest that I have in, in terms of how does patriarchy express itself in the law, in our theology, and also in our understandings of the nation state and capitalism and what women's labor is worth. So sort of connecting all of those to each other and showing how in a lot of these oppressive structures we're more similar than we are different. So Aisha Chowdhury, what is the color of God? <laughs> I think the point of the book is, um, I think if you read the book, that question goes away. But the phrase comes from a verse in the Quran that says, the color of God and what is more beautiful than the color of God. And I think theologically, that's a really interesting, it's a verse that I have always loved. When I first read it, I just felt it was so poetic. It was so philosophical. And I think it's a really beautiful verse, I think now that I've studied hermeneutics also, because it's a phrase that you cannot read without filling in details. So without thinking about, you know, what is, does God have a color? What is color? What could God's color be? So it forces your, it forces our brain to fill in, fill in details. And I think in doing that, it helps us learn something about ourselves. Like, what do we believe about God? What, if God had a color, what color would that be? What do we mean by that? What do we mean by color? Is color like a way of life? Is color a hue? Is it like an ethic? Um, so it raises all of these questions. So I really love that verse. Um, and more directly related to the book, the color of God, Sabwatullah is the Arabic word that's in the Quran, was the name of my nephew who passed away suddenly. And so the book is actually named after him. And his the story of his passing forms the first part and the last part of the book. And his passing was a deeply traumatic experience, of course, for my family. It happened suddenly. He was four and a half years old. And it basically brought me to a crisis of faith and made me question. It made me wonder about what it is that I really believed. Like, I thought I believed a whole number of things. But once he passed, I realized I wasn't sure I believed in them anymore or I didn't believe in them in the way that I thought I had believed in them. And so it forced me to go back and reconsider and re-examine a lot of the assumptions that I had been living with in an unreflective way until that point in my life. And so the middle section of the book is basically me doing that with him, with, with his story book ending yeah. the journey. More MIP after this message. So what is it that you most like readers to get from your story and, and your experience? What, what questions would you like to have the rest of us consider? Right. Well, I think, you know, often like the book is asking these big questions about the meaning of life, about what happens after we die. It's asking questions about how do we belong in our families, in our in the nation state as citizens? How do we belong in our fam in our families as well? And these are questions I think that, you know, when when like a white 
person asks that question or when they when they think about this stuff, it feels like there's an expectation that their experience or their opinions will have universal implications. And it's, you know, like we can all read Catcher in the Rye and get something from that or connect in one way or another to the characters therein or Shakespeare or Virginia Woolf or whoever you can, you can name a number of people. And I think that usually when people of color, this is not always, but usually when they are also asking the same questions, they usually have to be like big figures, political figures, philosophers, uh, scholars, in order to be able to ask questions that might have universal relevance. And I think that a voice that we don't often hear from as having universal implications is the, the voice of a Muslim woman, actually. And so I think, or that that's one of the many voices that we don't often hear about as having ideas or opinions or experiences that are that might have universal implications. And so one of the things that I wanted to do was create a space for us to have these deeper conversations that we could all connect with, but through a lens that we're not used to having those conversations with. And part of why I want to do that is to help us see ourselves in a new light, but also to encourage others to see that their own lens, even if it feels niche or immediate to them, would have implications and universal implications for all of us. So I just want to I really want to make space for people to feel like their stories are important to tell, that their experiences are worth deep analysis, and that we can all learn from hearing from more and more perspectives and being exposed to more lenses in that way. And in that way, I feel like, you know, Claudia Rankin's work, by the way, is like one of the scholars who I think she does that so brilliantly in her work, where she has, she has an experience, she pays attention to it, she shows us that our experiences are worth paying attention to and that they're worth analyzing. And that if we, if we really delve deep into them, we, we can come up with truths that, are, that many people can connect to that might not be immediately in our particular experience. Yeah, that's actually beautiful itself, would you Thank say, you. frankly. Thank you. Celebrity mm-hmm. and whiteness mm-hmm. should not predetermine relevance. Right. And that's a battle some of us fight every day. Mm-hmm. Just anecdotally, I was talking to, uh, as I often do, talking to a a group of activists and organizers Uh in Delaware. Delaware has no locally, shall we say, station media. Their television and news media is based out of Philly and New Jersey and Maryland. Okay. So as a result, when we hear all the stories about the George Floyds and the Breonna Taylors and the Micaiah Bryants and Dante Wrights, um, we don't hear about those in Delaware because there's no real local television market, so to speak. And they share some compelling information with me, basically that proves that the current president of the United States home state is in and of itself is a police state. Police killings that go unreported. And they asked me, uh, it's almost as if you were there, Aisha. <laughs> they asked me, they said, Reverend Mark, how do we get not only coverage for Delaware, but get people to see it and pay attention to it? Mm-hmm. And it goes back to, you know, who decides what is most relevant to be heard right. and to be seen? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so I, I think what you said is, is very important. We, that is his own struggle. We have to figure out ways for your story to be heard as it is in the book and for other stories to be heard as well, then may end up being liberating for all of us and, and not just presume that just because, you know, one person has a certain status or is white 
right but even a non-white person with mm -hmm. a certain number of twitter followers this is if what right. they say is more important mm -hmm. than the stories of others i mean i, I think that's what mm -hmm. you're saying and that's why I'm yeah. saying it's a beautiful thing mm -hmm. yeah and there's you know there's all these like systemic reasons for why we don't get to hear those stories as you're explaining in your experience with Delaware and and so like it's not it's not a, there's no easy answer around like to there's no easy way to think about it but I think the more voices that we can get out there however we do it like for example through your radio show the more space you know in our there is even in our imaginations of ourselves for for what kinds of futures are possible right right and we also know that in terms of all the, the, the boxes we described, even your family alone could check. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't get in the boxes my family check. Let's mm -hmm. just deal with yours. <laughs> we put both these families together. We've got about 20 boxes. <laughs> but, but, but everything that relates to those boxes and puts us in, in a position of discrimination, oppression, everything else, and Islamophobia has now been exacerbated um, by, you know, obviously the the last leader of the free world we just mm -hmm. fell from america and and his following uh exacerbated by a social media climate that encourages hate uh and racism and discrimination mm -hmm. so i mean i think what you've done is more timely than ever you know to have these conversations and and to have this this period of reflection Right. And it's it's it, one of the challenges that I was thinking about in the book as I was writing it is that, you know, we live in this world, this world that's uh, shaped by all kinds of systemic oppressions, you know, racism, Islamophobia, white supremacy, patriarchy, classism, capitalism is like a huge problem. And so we have all of these things that we live with. And yet, you know, our lives cannot be reduced to those systems of oppression. We have so many, we have lives that are so much more richer and more complex and nuanced and so much fuller than wh what any of those, these oppressive systems can capture. And so I think I was trying to really, you know, pay attention to the ways that those structures were affecting my life, but at the same time, how I was living a, a full, beautiful life in the middle of all of that. You know, sometimes I think that impulse is to define ourselves by the oppression that we experience. And I think it's so important to pay attention to those structures of inequality. But I am really curious about what's left and who we are when those systems leave the room, when patriarchy leaves the room, or when whiteness leaves the room, who are we? And so that's a question that I'm really curious about as well in relation to that. Who are we and what defines us? Right. And, and all of that. Right. And Sadia Hartman has that question of we, you know, like in her book, Lose Your Mother, where she's like, has this incredible journey and, you know, really destabilizes the notion of what the we is and how ephemeral the we is and how it's, uh, it's always being formed and reformed. Yeah. 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 I'm sure your, your students are blessed to have you. Thank you. You all, you, you all, you all uh, take on these kinds of questions. We do, we do. It's really wonderful. <laughs> I bet it is. I bet it is. Well, it's been a pleasure hearing about you and hearing your story. Folks, check out the book, The Color of God, uh, newly released by Aisha Chowdhury. And there will probably be some questions you can answer for yourselves and by doing so answer for all of us. What What is left? Um, and uh, you've even challenge me because now I begin to wonder how much of what I do every day is defined by what's going on outside and what's going on with my oppression as opposed to what I'm able to carve out in my own 
um, definition. So yeah, that's 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 challenging. That's I'm def- glad to hear that. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. <laughs> so you you done your job with this student. Okay. Um, <laughs> Thank clearly, you clearly, I'm too old to be one of your students, but yet I still am. <laughs> Uh, Aisha Chowdhury, folks, the color of God. Do check it out. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, and wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.